Heavenly Father, we thank you again for uh, all the truth that we learn about of you from the scriptures. We thank you uh, for who you are. We thank you that you are the God who rules over all things and uh, understands every detail of our lives. We thank you that you are the God who, even though you know everything about us, you save sinners uh, like us, and you bring us to yourself through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that even in the preaching we would not speak of ourselves and our weaknesses, but of him and his glory. And Lord, that we would be attracted to him, that we might hunger for him, that we might want to be like him. Uh, Forgive us for our sin. And be gracious to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, a couple of weeks ago, Forbes magazine, uh, as they love to do, reported the richest billionaires in the world. They like to tell you the top 25 billionaires in the world and then the top 25 billionaires in Australia. Uh, Warren Buffett, as usually, was at the top of the list. Uh, he's uh, at the ripe, ripe young age of 89, and he continues to work and continues to earn more money, and he's uh, incredibly interested on in being richer. They looked at the Australian top 25, and we've got at least four people in their late 80s and into their mid-90s uh, still working and uh, very keen to be richer. Um, you must ask the question, why? when all of us really wake up every morning dreaming of retirement Um, and we're wondering when we get to stop working. Um, Well, Natasha Delgado of the Southampton University, as every university that has too much money, decided to do research and interview, I think it was about 70 billionaires. And um, they asked 70 billionaires, why do you keep working? They asked them many questions, but on this question, why do you keep working? Why do you want to get richer? She answers this. She says, successful people are often unsatisfied with the goals that they have achieved. They want more. Uh, They want more to stimulate them. They also have a constant fear of losing their fortune. They have a constant fear of security. They have a constant fear of losing their social status. Um, Our text this morning is really in stark contrast, isn't it, to what we read about our billionaires. Uh, It it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Uh, They shall be satisfied. They will be content. They'll have peace, and they will know joy. And they'll know this from God's hand himself. It's not something that springs up from their own ability or their own inert goodness that comes from God. Uh, well, uh, why don't we try looking at that this morning under three headings. The first heading is, we need a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Now, I'm sure Joel's probably covered this once at least, the Beatitudes in your church, but uh, we, do, we just started it in our church, and I'll just give you a quick summary uh, the, the, the instant thing is to think that they're commands, they're things we have to do. That if we can somehow manufacture a hunger and a thirst, we'll be filled. Uh, this is not how you understand these uh, statements that were read to us by Danny. 
The Beatitudes are a description of a Christian. They're a description of characteristics, not that we produce in ourselves, but that the work of the Holy Spirit produces in a Christian. Uh, It's a spiritual work. These traits become ours when God, through His Spirit, comes and dwells in us. Can can I point out to you just the spiritual nature of of these Beatitudes? For instance, the first Beatitude in verse 3 of Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Do you notice they're not physically poor, they're spiritually poor. And these blessed ones who are spiritually poor, who are bankrupt, uh, they're actually the owners, they're the owners of heaven. They're not the owners of earth. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then the second is like it. Although it's not clearly said, it's actually a spiritual comment there. The second says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The mourning is not mourning over physical loss. It's not mourning over a loss of a family member. It's mourning over spiritual loss. And the spiritual loss we have because of our sin. It's mourning over our sin. The third beatitude is like the first and the second. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, Jesus is saying that Christians are humble, humble in the inner man. They don't just fake humility by bowing and scraping. They don't just fake humility by using words of flattery. No, no, in the inner man they've been humbled. They've been humbled before God and humbled before their fellow man. And for them, their inheritance is the earth. In this life, it's actually contentment. Uh, In this life, no matter what situation you'll find a Christian in, it's like they've got everything. It's like they don't need anything. It's like they have the whole of this earth. Uh, And in the next life, they'll actually have the new heavens and the new earth. It will be theirs. Uh, We need God to do a work in us for this to be ours. Uh, We need God to come in and do radical heart surgery. Otherwise we will know nothing of these characteristics in our lives. These Beatitudes describe what the Spirit does in a Christian. And the Spirit's work in a Christian is progressive, and it's a progressive work. It starts with being poor in spirit, then progresses to mourning, then progresses to being humbled, and so on. The first part of the Spirit's work is a negative work. It's a tearing down. It's a bringing low. And the Christian is largely torn and brought low and negatively, if you like, worked upon by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Did you pick that up from the first beatitude, for instance? First, we become aware that we're spiritually bankrupt. We become aware that we're poor. We realize we've got no resources, no spiritual resources. We can't come and sit before God and say, let's negotiate at a negotiating table because I've got these spiritual resources that I bring to the table and you've got those spiritual resources and let me trade mine for yours. We can't do that, no. Uh, We've got no brownie points. We've got no favor with God. We come to God like beggars, just begging for mercy. The next thing is the same. The Holy Spirit tears us down. He brings us 
tremendous remorse. We, we go through deep sorrow and deep sorrow for sin. We deeply regret the offense that we have caused to God. It's not that we regret the consequences of our sin, it's almost that we know we deserve it. And we accept it. I uh, went to prison and visited a Christian man in prison. He actually uh, was attending St. John's Park Baptist Church. He was converted, and when he was converted, he promptly marched himself up to the police and confessed. He derived wealth from his criminal activities, and he knew the law was that that wealth belongs now to the state. He declared his wealth. And six houses got taken off him. And he said, this is exactly what I need. This is exactly what is the best thing for me. Now I have all my trust in God. Um, we went to encourage him. After hearing all that, you could imagine what it did to us. We're not shameful of the... We're not, if you like, sad because of the punishment of sin. We know it's due. We're not sad because we got caught out and we've been shamed by sin. We hate sin itself. We're saddened that sin is such a pollutant. We're saddened that sin disappoints God. We're saddened that sin angers God. And that this wonderful, loving, righteous God is now offended by something we've done. And quite logically comes the third beatitude, because then the Holy Spirit humbles us and teaches us we're not as good as we think we are. It teaches us that we're not great. In fact, we're quite the opposite. We are humble before God and we come to the end of ourselves. In fact, we come to a healthy distrust of ourselves and we don't trust ourselves, but rather now we're willing to look up to God and we're willing to listen to God. And we're willing to hear his point of view because we know our point of view just got us constantly into this horrible mess. And then at the same time, the Spirit does this work to not only think of ourselves as low and humbled, but to think of others higher than ourselves. It's a negative work, isn't it? It's a tearing down. And the tearing down has to be done before the building up can be big can be started. You've got to dig up the foundations before you can lay uh, anything on top. God has to strip ourselves of self-righteousness. We've got to be stripped of any thought that we have any good in us. And if we think like that, we should be even seeing those things as filthy rags. And until that pride is taken off us, uh, until he has torn us down. He doesn't start to clothe us in righteousness. Uh, the Spirit starts by an inward work. He starts, you just start looking at yourself, looking inside, examining yourself. That, that's the first part. And you've got to do this examination thoroughly because when he's empowering you to do it, you come to that conclusion you failed the test. You're flawed. Uh, when you come before God, you realize you're going the wrong way. But 
To be honest, I'm actually being very polite. I've been sucked in by this political correctness and said it to you in a very nice way. You can all sit there and nod your head and smile and we all can pat ourselves at the back at morning tea. What I really should be saying to you is something a little bit more aggressive because that's how the Bible puts it. The Bible really says in paraphrased terms, and I've paraphrased it for you, you're an egomaniac. You're totally caught up with yourself. You wake up in the morning and the first thing you think about is me. You're narcissistic. Deep down, if you really were to evaluate yourself, you'd find out, if you were going to be honest, that you can have the capacity to do great harm to others, whilst you can pander and pamper yourself quite easily. You can cause great hurt. You can quite deliberately be a vindictive monster of the Hitler variety. And until the Spirit has done this work and taught you this, He will not work in you positively. Let me ask you now, to start off this morning, how do you feel about yourself? Did you get up in the, this morning and get dressed and put your tie None of you did, I'm glad. I put my tie on and look at yourself in the mirror and say, I look all right. I'm a nice person, I'm going to church. And then as you were heading out the door, you thought, hang on a minute, I better go have a second look at myself and check again. And as I went back to the mirror, I said, actually, I'm wonderful. To be honest, I think I'm the most honest person I know. And I generally always want to do the right thing. I'm one of the few people in this world I can trust. And God's put me on this world to tell everyone else what to do. How can they pull their socks up? How can they lift their game? Well, if you're thinking that way this morning, if that was your thought this morning as you got dressed to come to church, I've got to sadly tell you, you're probably not a Christian. Martin Lloyd-Jones recommends that you should go back and re-examine the foundations. You should start again. The Spirit has not started a work in you. The Spirit has not done the tearing down work that you need. And before you consider our text this morning, the first thing we need to do then, and if we're in that situation, is cry out to God for mercy. And cry out, cry out to him to start the work. Because when the Holy Spirit does do a work, the first thing we get is dissatisfied with our spiritual poverty. We get sick of our sin. We are absolutely disgusted with our sinful heart. And we just want to get rid of it. We've just had enough of it. We want less and less of ourselves. We want more and more of God. And that brings us to our text, doesn't it? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now we all know what hunger and thirst is. We were all babies. We all know what it is to cry out from the day we were born for milk. And if we didn't, we obviously probably don't remember that. We've all seen babies do that. Hunger is defined as a strong desire for food. 
It can also be described as a weakness or a discomfort that you might feel because you lack food. Thirst is, on the other hand, a need for water, isn't it? It's associated with dryness or dehydration. In one sense, we all know this. At one time or the other, we've been hungry. One time or the other, we've been thirsty. But this is not speaking about that. This is speaking about a permanent hunger and a permanent thirst. In Australia, we have an abundant supply of food and abundant supply of water. None of us have lived through the recession where food was rationed or uh, none of us know what it was to experience famine in this country. I suspect none of us know what it is to have a permanent hunger and thirst. I suspect we don't know pains in our stomach or desperation that is felt when we just cannot have food or water. Uh, this is what Jesus is talking about, but not in this physical realm. He's speaking about it in the spiritual realm, isn't he? Uh, these Beatitudes are spiritual in nature. He's speaking about a permanent, a painful, a desperate longing for righteousness. The psalmist put it this way, As the deer pants for the water brook, so, my, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. That the first thing we pick up from this text is that we need a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. The second thing we pick up is uh, that a hunger and a thirst for righteousness is essential for salvation. It's essential. It's an essential part of being a Christian. You see, after the Spirit tears us down, He starts to build us up. After an honest self-examination, after an inward look, when that's complete, he gets us to look outside. Spirit doesn't leave us paralyzed with self-examination. Uh, the Spirit gets us to look outward. We get sick of our own righteousness or unrighteousness, and we now long for an outside, a real righteousness. The longing obviously implies that we don't have any righteousness in ourselves. The longing obviously implies that we must look outside if we're going to find a righteousness. The thirst uh, and the hunger speak of having to look to the place where you can find righteousness. And there's only one place, the Bible tells us, where you will find righteousness. You, you find it in God. And so speaking about a hunger and a thirst for God. The Spirit has started negatively, but now the Spirit progresses and starts to do a positive work. It's a change of heart, isn't it? We would call it being born again. And what does this righteousness, what is this righteousness that the Spirit hungers for? What is this righteousness that our new heart hungers for? For some people, they, they've limited righteousness to a narrow-minded set of rules. When we were growing up, there were uh, three things that were tests, really. Um, if you drank, if you smoked, or if you danced, well, you were not righteous. If you avoided these things, well, you obviously loved righteousness. But if you uh, had any part of any of the three, well, you had problems. 
And yet if you look at the Bible, the Bible says nothing directly about smoking. The Bible has only a few references about dancing and none of those references condemn it. And interestingly, when you come to wine, the Bible says it makes the heart merry, but it's drunkenness that is condemned. And we've never really asked ourselves, how did Jesus celebrate when he was at the wedding at Cana? Um, how did the father make merry when the prodigal son came home? There's a discussion for morning tea, if you like. I'm not advocating smoking, I'm not advocating drinking or dancing. Uh, but, but we've got to be careful, don't we, when we express righteousness as a set of rules that you don't do. Uh, you've got to be really careful if your rules actually have no scripture as a basis for it. Just rules you came up with because either you couldn't dance or you didn't like the taste of wine or you just felt someone should or shouldn't do something. Uh, righteousness is not just a set of things we don't do. Other Christians would probably think righteousness is uh, judgment or condemnation. They see God rightly as holy and just. They see us as sinful. And therefore if God is righteous and if we're unjust and we're unrighteous, well surely God's righteousness is displayed in the judgment and in the punishment and in the destruction of the wicked. And there is an element of truth in this, isn't there? We can't hide from that. I mean, Israel Falau didn't this week. Um, but God's righteousness is displayed uh, in his faithfulness as well, isn't it? He never tells a lie. He always keeps his promises. Um, he does destroy the wicked. But, but notice how he reveals himself to Moses when Moses wanted to see God in Exodus 34. In Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, this is what we read. And the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity upon the fathers, upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. You see, there is judgment. But it didn't start that way, did it? It was mercy, long-suffering, God keeping his word, remembering his promises, loving sinners. Righteousness is much more than judgment. It's more than condemning what is wrong. It's not just negative, it's positive. Righteousness is derived from the word right. It's knowing what is right and doing what is right. And it's a whole orb view of righteousness that we hunger for when we become a Christian. A, a believer seeks to be like God. He wants to know God and he wants to be like God. He picks up his Bible and reads his Bible about Jesus and he longs to be like Jesus. Righteousness in Jesus is seen in words and, and seen in example, isn't it? As he's reading the Bible, he's watching and learning this, about this person who's totally righteous. And the believer hungers for Jesus because righteousness is found in a person, not, not in a set of rules only. 
So when the Holy Spirit reveals God in Jesus Christ to a person, to a believer, righteousness actually becomes attractive. Righteousness becomes something to be desired and to be loved. It's the picture of a person who's in love, isn't it? Uh, the person that they love is so attractive that they must have them. The person that they love, it, they long for so much that they pine and sulk and mope around when they can't have them. The person that they love is so much that they must be with that person 24 hours a day. It is this kind of intensity that Jesus is speaking of in terms of hunger and thirsting for him. Matthew 11, uh, Jesus says, The kingdom will be taken by violence. Violent men will take the kingdom by force. You have to feel the intensity of the Spirit's work in uh, the life of a believer. It's an intense hunger. It's an intense thirst. And it's not just a New Testament thing. It's an Old Testament thing because we read that in our Bible reading. Psalm 63. O oh God, you are my God. Early I will seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you. In a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Uh, this is the hunger and thirst for righteousness the Beatitude is speaking of. This is what Jesus is describing. Hunger starts firstly with a right relationship with God. We want a right record with God. We want the barrier of sin removed. We want the guilt and the sin that separates us from God taken away. And we know we lack righteousness. We need righteousness put to our account. Our self-righteousness is a negative. And we need an external righteousness provided for us. And the gospel teaches us that Jesus does exactly that. He provides us a perfect righteousness by taking away our sin record at the cross and then he puts to us his perfect account of righteousness. Paul says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So initially we embrace Christ to remove the record, don't we? The bad record we've already got. We embrace Christ by faith. We put our trust in his work on the cross to, to get our record right, to get our relationship right. Uh, but then our starving never stops, it carries on, we want more. We, we want a right walk with God. We want to start off fresh. We want to clear the decks of historic sin, of course, but we want a new life. We want a life that doesn't repeat what we did in the past. We want to be like Jesus. And once again, the Holy Spirit does a work, doesn't he? He gives us a new heart. And this new heart is a wonderful thing. It, it breaks the power of sin. The shackles now are broken. We now are freed to love and serve God and love and serve one another. But we now hunger for a life that conforms to the law of God. There you go, the rules do come in sometime. We want to conform to the will of God. 
We no longer want to drift along in life and just go with the crowd, no. We want to purposefully chase after God and the things of God. The Reformers and the Puritans made a big deal about things called the means of grace. Now you probably know what they are. Uh, in our church I had to explain it because we talk about these things but I've never linked it to this term, the means of grace. And when they spoke of the means of grace, they were speaking of things that God has given us to be vehicles. Vehicles by which he conveys his grace to us that we might live a righteous life, that we might be fed righteousness and given food, that we might have our hunger for righteousness satisfied. And it spoke of things like reading the Bible and prayer. And it might be personal, but far more important to the Puritans and the Reformers was corporate prayer and corporate reading of the Bible. Far, important, far more important to them was the preaching of the word and, and fellowship with, one, with, the, with other believers. And they knew these things were given by God by, as vehicles, basically, to convey his grace to promote righteous living. So they committed themselves to their local churches. They hungered with pain for the gatherings of the local church where they'd be fed, where they'd be watered, where they'd have their hunger and thirst for righteousness, if you like, satisfied. Righteousness is not just something that is purely a hunger and thirst for righteousness, not something that is just a hungry and thirsting for God. Yes, it is. But it flows out. It flows out to people. Your hungry and thirsting for God results in hungering and thirsting for the good of others, for the care for others, for promoting their welfare. It's a full-orbed righteousness. And it's this righteousness that's not an optional luxury for a Christian. It's a necessity. Jesus says, blessed are those, those ones who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I hope I've described you this morning, because this is a description of a saved person, a Christian. And lastly, Jesus promises to these people they'll be filled. Have you ever asked yourself why our generation is so dissatisfied? Why is life so ho-hum? So boring for so many. Why do so many feel things are so unfair and things have to be made their way straight away? Surely it's because we're chasing after the wrong things. Surely because it is our world that chases after and hungers for food that just never satisfies. Isaiah 55, Isaiah throws out... Uh, some questions. In verse 2 of Isaiah 55, he asks this question, Why do you spend money for things that are not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy? It's a description of our world, isn't it? We spend all our efforts, all our energies are put into, bucket loads and bucket loads of energy are put into finding happiness. If it makes you happy, it must be okay. And so we entertain ourselves. We please ourselves with our hobbies. We, we make sure we have 
plenty of holidays. We, we find plenty of distractions in everyday life. Just to find happiness, to be happy. And at the end of it, we're still not happy. Others seek for security. And we're looking for financial security or social security or security in business or security in employment. Some of us just want health and safety. But, but even when we get security, we're not satisfied. And then there's the obvious Aussie dream, which is ease. We, we want no work. Work is not something that God intended for us, no. It's an annoyance, it's a burden, it's a pain in the neck. So how can I have all the goodies without having to work? Can I buy a lottery ticket? Maybe no one else needs to know in the church. Can I find a loophole, maybe workers' comp or something like that, to just find a, a way to avoid work? Now, none of these things the Bible says will satisfy. They're escapes. And you will not get everlasting joy, the Bible says. The Bible never tells us anywhere in any place to seek happiness, to seek comfort, to, to seek security or ease. But rather these things are provided to you by Christ. These things are provided when you seek him. He produces joy. He comforts you in your sadness. He gives you peace. He gives you an easy yoke if you come to him. But sadly, even amongst Christians... Not just our world that chases after the wrong things, even Christians. We're, we're unwilling to hunger for righteousness. We also want happiness. We, we also want comfort and ease. We, we constantly look for things that don't satisfy. If you, I, I don't know if you've ever Googled other churches in your local area. Um, and you say, what, what are they going to provide for me? I, I need a church that's going to care for me. And so you look and you see, and really is righteousness on the list. We don't put up on the top of our goals in our church, and I suspect not in your church, that we're seeking to promote a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Can I read to you some of the descriptions I found on the internet? What um, One church says, Our mission is to help you use your gifts and your abilities. We want you to have experiences in God's kingdom in various ways. We want to help you to act with justice, humility and mercy. We want to help you give generously of your time and just in case you forgot, your money as well. And we want to help advocate for the poor and the marginalized. It's all about you. It's all about the horizontal. It's all about me. It's not about God. It's not about righteousness. Another church said, uh, what we offer is shape. I read that and I thought, I could do with some shape. I should consider that one. But when I read further, it says S is for special gifts. H is for a heart of passion. A is for abilities. We develop your abilities. We develop your personality. P is for personality. And we'll give you many experiences. What is lacking there is we support you to conform to the law of God. We need more of a hunger and a thirst for God in this place. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones says this is the very essence of a Christian. If you don't have a hunger and a thirst for God, for righteousness, you're not a Christian. An old commentator said, O Lord, make me as holy as a pardoned sinner can be. This should be the goal of our church, shouldn't it? This should be the goal of Smithfield. This should be the main thing we look for when we're looking for a church, if we have to look for a church. Uh, Isaiah's question is so relevant. Why do you spend money on things that are not bread? Why do you spend your wages on things that do not satisfy? And his answer or response to that, not that it needs a response, but his response is a loving invitation. He says, listen to me carefully, eat what is good, and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Lloyd-Jones says, again, he says, if you go to a doctor and you tell him I have pain, if all he does is treat your pain, well then he's cruel. Lloyd-Jones says pain is good. It's actually a warning message, it's a signal. It's telling you there's a problem somewhere else. What the doctor needs to do is diagnose the underlying problem that is causing the pain. He or she needs to treat and diagnose the problem behind the pain. And then once that is treated, the pain will go away. To just silence the pain is no cure at all. And so it is within the spiritual realm. Our problem is not... Uh, a lack of happiness, or a lack of security, or a lack of ease, or a lack of any of those other things. It's a lack of righteousness, isn't it? Our problem is that we don't hunger and thirst for righteousness. If we seek God's kingdom first, and if we seek his righteousness, we promise that all these things will be added to us. We will be content, we will be satisfied, we will be joyful. And this is what Jesus promises in our beatitude. He says, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he says, they shall, they shall be filled. We'll be given our desire. When we seek and hunger righteousness, we will get more righteousness. When we seek after God, we will find God. Seeking righteousness breeds righteousness. And righteousness produces satisfaction and contentment and joy and peace. This is something Jesus says over and over again. Do you remember the woman with five husbands but shacked up with another bloke? She couldn't get enough blokes. In John 4, verse 14, uh, she offers to give Jesus water from the well. And Jesus says, your water, well, it won't permanently cure my thirst. Let me read it to you. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into eternal life. Jesus fed 5,000 people. And at the end of it, they followed him. Why? Because they wanted more bread. They were still hungry. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. You see, Jesus knew. True Christians hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is what they will want. Uh, and they'll want to know what is right. They'll want to do what is right. And this is something we cannot do of ourselves. This is something that is the work of God.
It's a work of God's Spirit alone. But we need to cry out to Him. But all we can do is come to Him. We don't need to come with any bargaining spiritual resources that we get to buy this food. We come as we are. We come with nothing. We come as beggars. And we just cry out to God for mercy. And He does the rest. This is His promise. He'll fill us immediately. He'll fill us in this life. And in the life to come in glory, He will fill us in a way you can never understand in this life. Isaiah 55, He says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy. Wine and milk without money and without price. Isaiah says, Listen to me carefully. Eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in fatness, in abundance. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your wonderful promises. We thank you that you are so righteous that not one of your promises will ever fail. Uh, We thank you that we can read this and uh, know that uh, you, our God, will hear anyone who comes to you and calls on you for help and mercy and grace. Lord, we pray that you would be merciful to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.